Hey, Brandon Laws here, and welcome to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Thank you for the download. Really appreciate it. You're going to really enjoy this episode. I loved it. I cannot wait to share this with you. So I'll make this quick. I wanted to basically give you a little bit of background. Eric Tremonde is the guest, and a colleague of mine, Susie Weir, put his work in my hands, so to speak. She forwarded me a TED Talk of his and just said, hey, look, this guy is probably the next Simon Sinek. I mean, and Susie's a huge fan of Simon Sinek and his work. We find it, everybody has any, and a lot of people out there find his work really inspiring. And if she feels like Eric's the next, and I always hate doing that because everybody's their own person, but Simon Sinek's ideas have made such an impact globally. And for Susie to say something like that, I was like, okay, there has to be something here. So I reached out to Eric I was fortunate to book him for this podcast. He's the author of Rethink Work, Finding and Keeping the Right Talent. He wrote that several years ago. And he does a lot of speaking and he's building a company around his ideas. So in this podcast, we cover everything from stereotyping generations to what's the HR departments of the future going to look like. We elaborate on why people are leaving jobs so fast, what employers need to be focused on, those kind of things. So this podcast interview is jam-packed with ideas. Eric's super articulate. Probably one of my favorite interviews I've done in a while. They're all my favorite. It's like picking a favorite child, honestly. So, <laughs> so that's kind of hard to pick. But this one ranks up there. Eric was fantastic. And I cannot wait for you to listen. Please let me know what you thought of it. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a review. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, all those places. I want to hear what you thought about this one in particular. So enjoy the episode with Eric Tremonde, the author of Rethink Work. Eric, so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. You're everywhere right now. You got TED Talks, you're writing books, you're making guest appearances on TV shows, all sorts of stuff. And you're in your 20s, aren't you? Yeah, that's true. So you probably get asked this question quite a bit. It's worth diving into and starting the podcast this way. But why are people in their 20s quitting jobs at a pace that they are and, and switching jobs? Well, I wouldn't limit it to people in their 20s, first of all. I think the world of work is a lot different than it was 15 or 20 years ago. In fact, I saw a post this morning on Twitter that said that IBM supercomputer that they spent $110 million on in 2001 has the same computing power as the new Xbox X series that's coming out later this year. So the world technologically is insanely different. And as a result, how we work, when we work, who we work with, and why we work, I think are all changing. What I think is happening now is you'll see this, we'll call it next generation of talent who is now privy to or aware of so many more working conditions than previous generations were. I mean, I know that my parents and my grandparents, they both grab jobs from the end of the university bulletin board hallway, you know, where they just picked off a piece of paper or they looked at the classified <laughs> section yeah. of the newspaper and they said, you know, job offered. And they said, hey, I might as well go give that a call. Wait a second. I already know that that's a friend of a friend. Why don't I just go and say hi? I can stop by their house. Now, look, I might be exaggerating slightly, but the reality of today's job market is that the average person is looking at 70 jobs before getting an interview. I know that the average white collar job that's being posted in, let's just say Toronto or New York or LA or any major city in North America, is getting about 250 applicants per job posting. It's incredible. Let's go back to the question. Why are people leaving jobs now faster than they ever have before? 
my theory is that they're aware of more opportunities. Now, the yeah. problem with this is that HR marketing companies, whoever it is you want to give credit to, are actually really good at their jobs. And they're really good at marketing the perks and the benefits and the ping pong table and the foosball table and the dog of the company. Where I think the pitfall really is, is that we don't talk about the experience of the job. Let's just say the amount of emails you get, the amount of time you're spending on a phone, how many people are on your media team, or what Inflex work looks like if you have to come in on the weekends. We're so busy selling the perks and the benefits that what happens is that when we only sell the perks and the benefits and you and I or anyone else in between goes to take these jobs, we find that our expectations are blown out of proportion Trust has been failed to be developed proactively. And as a result, we then job hop until we get it right. Now, people graduating high school will have statistically now 13 jobs by the time they're 40. And that's not because I think the future or the next generation is more narcissistic or entitled. I think they're just trying to get it right like anyone else did. You know, I think there's a blessing in disguise for previous generations that didn't have paradox of choice of opportunity that this generation does and as a result stayed with a career for way longer because perhaps they didn't know for better or worse what else was out there that they could be a part of. This goes back to like a statement you made in your book that you mentioned that there's a huge communication gap between job hunters and companies looking for employees and you mentioned that we're too busy spending time promoting the perks and benefits but how should we reframe it in a way that's you talk about the experience and like writing about what they're going to expect. Like talk more about that because you have some really, really good ideas on that. Yeah. I mean, look, the average job description today is between 250 to 300 words. And my big problem with that is how do we really know what we're signing up for in 250 to 300 words? I mean, look, we're working more now than we ever have before. And that might not mean that we're at work, but connected to work, thinking about work at a work events. It all adds up. And the problem with these job descriptions is that we don't really talk about that the rest of life. And the way that I see it now is that we don't sign up for a job anymore. We sign up for a life and the job that we fill becomes a vehicle that we use to drive through it. So work is a bigger identifier of who we are now than it's ever been before. And if we think that a 250 word to 300 word job description is going to cut it, I think just isn't correct. And so What's the solution? Well, the solution isn't necessarily to go spend, you know, $100,000 on a marketing campaign to talk about the employee experience, though many organizations are doing that too. I think something as simple as a video office tour could do a lot of good. I think instead of having the potential in candidate or the candidate, the potential employee interviewing just with HR, have them spend 30 minutes with someone that they're going to be spending more time with than they will their significant other or their son or their daughter or their parents. I mean, if we can have a 30-minute conversation with a potential teammate, imagine how much information we can get than just the job description or than just talking to HR. And by no means am I suggesting that HR is any less important. Understanding that these individuals have the skills, the qualifications, the experience, et cetera, is still and always will be incredibly important. But if we want to truly talk about culture fit, and we want to truly talk about experience alignment, have that potential individual visit or meet with the team that they're going to be spending the majority of their week with. And I think we'll start to get a lot further. Eric, you said something in your TED Talk that was so profound. And, and I hope a lot of people caught it. 
we put labels on these generations, right? Lazy millennials, okay, boomer, you know, those sort of things where we're putting people in these groups based on their age, when they were born, all these things, right? But you said something that was so amazing. Let's deconstruct the generations and put people together based on their values rather than when they were born. Elaborate on that because it was so amazing. (laughs) Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Let me ask you this. Between which years were millennials born? Let's see, 84 to 94, 95? I don't even know. See, and herein lies the point, (laughs) and this is not to make you look good or bad or anything in between. I like to say between 85 and 90. So even there, we've got a five-year discrepancy. And when I ask this question around the world, I don't get a consistent answer. And I think herein lies the problem about these generational stereotypes is that how can we possibly generalize or stereotype a group of people that we can't even define? Hiring a millennial is like saying, I want to hire someone with a size 10 shoe or with blonde hair or with brown eyes. I mean, when we talk about what people are, their age, their race, their shoe size, we forget to talk about who they are. And therein lies the true differentiator. I mean, we've gone from traditionalists to boomers to Gen X to Gen Y to Gen Z to I don't know what's next, like what I like to call like the battery generations, like A, double A, triple A. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's going to come next, but something will. And I think so long as we limit this conversation to talking about age, we'll really fail to get to who the individual is. And truthfully, I think that this promotes a more diverse and inclusive workplace too, because if we're stuck saying that we're going to hire a white male or a black female, then we get stuck too much in this like checkbox quota hitting exercise that doesn't do anyone any good. If we want someone who's going to work a very strict nine to five, and when they leave their work at home, they will not be called in on the weekends. It will be, let's just say shift work on the manufacturing line then, hey, we can start to get somebody who wants that experience, who values that security, who values that work-life balance, which, hey, truthfully, they're not going to get many other places. And so what I like to say to organizations is to say, you know, when you try and be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to anyone. And so when we focus on this idea of being the best, my question to you is, who are you best for? Because it's not for everyone. And I can almost promise you it's not for millennials either. It's for the individual that wants the experience that you already are giving your existing employees. And so what I like to say is if you can understand the heart of your team, that is the habits, the artifacts, the rituals, and the traditions, and I encourage you to do that. Write that down. H-A-R-T. What are our habits, our artifacts, our rituals, and our traditions that separate us and make us unique? then we can start to understand not what we're attracting, but who. Because I think this generational conversation has had its time. And if it were up to me, we would never talk about it again. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think it was at one point when there wasn't as much communication options. The technology has really brought on all these things, right? Where we can now showcase what our culture is like and our values and beliefs. And I think just communication is getting better. People expect it now. Hey guys, it's Brandon here, your host of Transform Your Workplace. And I wanted to say that today's episode is sponsored by Pat Live. Did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person? I mean, that's insane. And 85% of customers won't call back after an unanswered call. 
Stop forfeiting your business to your competitors because of missed calls. PatLive offers 24-7 live answering services, so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And unlike many other live answering services, they're open 365 days a year. Their friendly and professional agents are all located in the United States and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts and call handling experiences to fit your business needs and fit seamlessly in with your brand. Pat Live is more than just an answering service. Whether you need assistance on nights and weekends, overflow call handling, or full coverage, Pat Live has you covered. They offer everything from message taking, call screening and transfers to lead collection, appointment scheduling, order processing, and so much more. According to business.com, Pat Live is the best answering service for small businesses in 2020. With Pat Live's virtual receptionist, you can turn more callers into customers, take better care of your clients, and improve your team's ability to focus and be productive. And now for a limited time only, Pat Live is offering listeners of this podcast 15% off their regularly listed rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866-708-2507. That's 866-708-2507. And mention this podcast for more information or visit patlive.com. Make every call count with Pat Live. So is it too much to ask that employers now think this way? Like, this is what people want. They want to search for that belonging, the values that are aligned, all those things. Is it asking too much to push employers in this direction? I mean, a couple of things I'll say is that number one, if you don't go this direction, I'm fairly confident in saying that you probably won't have a business in the next five to 10 years. So don't do it for me, do it for yourself. And the second thing that I would say is that this change is not significant. In fact, I like to call these sort of shifts like one degree shifts. And I think that going into this is pretty important because when we talk about the future of work, we hear words like change, speed, rapid innovation, radical disruption. We hear all these like huge words that I don't know if they're intended to strike fear into the listener's ears or what. But what I realized is that how we got to where we are today of course, it didn't happen overnight. It happened by every intentional decision that we made. So I like to call those one degree shifts. And getting to where we want to go next is not going to be a big radical jump either. It's going to be a series of decisions, a series of intentional decisions that we make over and over again. I mean, we all know how to eat an elephant, and that's one bite at a time. And we all know how to run a marathon, and that's one step at a time. And we all know how to gain and lose 10 pounds too. And that's one pound at a time, or perhaps one Big Mac at a time, or perhaps one extra run around the block at a time. And I think that when we look at making a change like this, we're not saying throw out the playbook. We're saying find where there's friction and look at the smallest viable change you can make to reduce that friction. And we make that change over and over and over again. All of a sudden, we're set on a new path. And I'll give you an example. You know, in 2002, Sir Dave Brailsford was asked to be the cycling coach for the British cycling team. Now, in the 76-year Olympic history, the British cycling team had never won a gold medal or even been on the podium in the Olympics. So Sir Dave Brailsford has a six-year window to get them from nowhere near the podium to on top of the podium. 
And he looked at the cycling team. He said, this is broken. This is absolutely in shambles. We could do one of two things. Number one, we could throw away the rule book and start all over, start with a new team, start with a new everything and see how we could take it. Or he took a different approach. Or he said, why don't we take this sort of one degree, 1% approach and make a series of small changes over and over and over again? Because what we know to be true and what we know that people hate are two things. The first is change. And the second is the way things are, right? So it kind of leaves us in a tough spot. We hate change, but we can't stand still either. So Sir Dave Brailsford took this one degree approach where he said, okay, where am I experiencing friction right now? And what he realized is that the players were getting sick, or sorry, the cyclists were getting sick too often. So what he did is he brought a surgeon in to teach them how to wash their hands. They sent out a press release that said, we will not be shaking hands. We will doing fist bumps or elbow bumps. And that's not out of disrespect, because we respect that everyone in the cycling world, we are just preserving the health of our riders. So they made that change. Then what he realized is the bikes were broken down too much. And so what he did is he painted the floor of the mechanics truck white and saw that dust was collecting. When he saw the dust was collecting, he swept out the dust from the bottom of the van and the bikes were back on the road faster. And when he made these changes over and over and over again, what he found is that in that six-year time, he made tens of dozens, if not hundreds of small one-degree shifts, reducing friction. And when they got to the 2008 Olympics, they made it to the podium, not once, not twice, but seven golds out of 10. And I think when we take this one-degree shift approach and when we shift from what we're attracting to who we're attracting, that we don't have to take our playbook and say, throw it out completely. We don't have to view this as a significant pivot for the company. What I think we have to realize is that when we continue to reduce friction, when we continue to build trust, and when we continue to make intentional one-degree shifts, we get to where we're going faster. Let's talk a little bit about just the way people are working nowadays, especially those who grew up with technology. I've heard this time and time again. People feel more isolated than ever, probably more so like people who grew up with it rather than the generations before them. I think they know how to disconnect. But people who are seemingly connected all the time, they feel more isolated, which makes no sense, but there's truth to it. So what's the solution and why is this happening? Well, I mean... I think you're going to need an expert far greater than I on this specific topic, but I've got a couple of theories anyways, none of them backed by significant research, just based on observation. What I know to be true is that we're checking our phones between 80 and 250 times a day. We're spending three and a half hours a day minimum on our cell phones and up to 11 hours a day in front of a screen, whether it be computer, TV, or cell phone combined. And in a world that I think has never been this connected, I don't think we've actually ever been this disconnected. And I think the reason for that is because it's really nothing replaces that face-to-face -face conversation. In fact, Google did a big study of a few, I think 5,200 of their employees asking, what is the smallest one degree shift that we can make in order for us to better connect as a team? And they said to stop doing conference calls without video. Because what happens when we have video is that I can see your reaction. I can see your facial expressions. I can see that you're focused on what it is that I'm saying. And you know that I'm focused on what it is that you're saying. It doesn't add anything else to the phone call in terms of commitments or requirements other than turning your webcam on so that everyone can at least feel that they can see each other's expressions. And so in this hyper-connected world, I think that what's happening is fewer or less and less face-to-face -face conversation is happening. And I would argue as a result of that, fewer experiences are being shared. 
you know, I might have an experience at my desk in my office recording this podcast, and you might have one wherever you are. We haven't had this discussion. But as a result, we're not able to share, you know, let's just say something happens in front of the window in front of you or in front of the window in front of me. We can't share that, build on that experience and create an in-person memory together. And as a result, I think that's where this sort of anxiety, depression, wellness in the workplace is starting to be lost. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Like it feels more transactional when it's just these micro communications or even the fact that, you know, we're having a conversation right now. I wish we had video so I could see you. And to the point you just made about sharing an experience, like it feels more transactional in nature. Whereas like, oh, we're together. I can see your facial expressions or, you know, something just happened outside your window. And I experienced that with you, whereas I can't see. So I, yeah, such a good point. That's it. And I mean, I think what's interesting, too, is that so many companies have said remote and flex work. And for the record, I don't think that it's not. It didn't work for a lot of companies, too. It didn't work for IBM. It didn't work for Yahoo. They ended up calling everyone back. But what I think is going to happen in the future is that the companies that are doing it best will give a percentage of the time to be optional remote and flex. There will also be that one, two, three, five times a week where the team has to come together in some way, shape or form and share an experience or a meeting together. What I think is often lost about a meeting in person with a remote or a flex team is that in many cases about the meeting, it's about bringing people together to ensure that everyone's on the same page, that you can share the room and an experience together and that you can build a deeper sense of belonging and trust because you're all in the same place fighting for the same end goal with each other. And so for those who feel, you know, perhaps a bit frustrated that they have to come back into the office who are working a bit remote and a bit flex, Use that time to really connect with your colleagues because they're in the same battle you are. You know, they're all hoping for the same positive outcome that you are. And at the end of the day, they're all trying to provide for their family or to make a better life for themselves, too. I think that when we can assume more positive intent in any of the change that we're making or in our colleagues and coworkers around us, that they're all in it for the right reasons, then I think that we can get through this change and build deeper connection more effectively. Hey, Brandon here taking a quick break to tell you that this episode of Transform Your Workplace is sponsored by Tresta. Tresta is a mobile app that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. With Tresta, you can set up your business phone number, download the app, and start calling and texting unlimited right away. Tresta is the best business phone app on the market. Growing your business is all about networking and communication, so it's important that you're available. If you've been carrying around a second smartphone, your chain to your desk phone, or worse, giving out your personal number to anybody that you do business with, then you should give this a try. Tresta offers the call management features that empower you to communicate smarter and more efficiently, like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more. And you don't need any special equipment, just a smartphone you're already using. Tresta is easy to configure so you can set up everything yourself all online. Tresta is just $15 per user per month with no contract. So start your free 30-day trial today at tresta.com forward slash transform. That's www.tresta.com slash transform. Now back to the show. The generations that came before us, they seemingly were able to go to work, punch the clock, go home, and disconnect from work. A few of them probably took work home with them. Technology wasn't to the point where we're like connected all the time and thinking about work and is probably more balanced. But there's this idea of this work-life integration now. And I read this headline the other day on LinkedIn that said, 
the laptop was the cause of all this now work-life integration where we're seemingly like working all the time. What's your thought about that and how people prefer to work? And what's your preference? Well, first of all, if I were to generalize a way that people <laughs> like to work, I think I would be doing a big disservice to the working world. I mean, there are sure. a lot of people that want stability and security working in nine to five. There are a lot of, let's just call them hustlers who will work around the clock to, you know, crush that new sales target. You know, let's talk about shift workers. Let's talk about nurses. Let's talk about four on four off police officers or firefighters, or let's talk about the people in the mines. Look, the future of work is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think that's really important to note because the laundromat is always going to have the laundromat's hours. I think that when you look at a law firm, the people articling in law firms will always be working longer hours. That's just the culture of the industry. And so, well, is the laptop killing work-life balance? Maybe, but I would argue that the employer is killing work-life balance, not the laptop. Because if we set better boundaries and limitations on where we were working and when we were working, and that came from the top down and those expectations were then fulfilled bottom up, then look, the laptop, look, that's just like saying guns kill people. Guns don't kill people. People do. Laptops aren't killing work-life integration. The expectations from employers to employees and that culture is what's killing work-life balance. So the sooner that we remove this blanket generalization on anything, and the more specific and articulate we get about the experience that we want to create for ourselves, then look, we realize that there are no tools that do bad things. There are rules and expectations around these tools that create bad things. Beautifully said. The highest producers in an organization, they typically work all the time and hustle or... Do you find that they're taking more breaks and have more balance in their work? You talk about this in your book. There's been studies done that say the optimal working window is 50 minutes and then a 17 minute break and then you're right back at it. I don't know, like, does that work universally? I can't comment on that. But what I will say is that, you know, those who are engaged in the work they do that feel like a sense of connection or purpose that they're making impact with their team, that they feel like they belong, that they're psychologically safe and they're trusted. I can tell you that they could do more work in 20 minutes yep. than someone who hates being there in three hours. So <laughs> again, no slight whatsoever. I think that's the wrong question. I think the question should be not who gets the most work done. It's like, what is the environment that we can create so that people can feel their best, therefore they then do their best. And again, that is no universal comment either because look, the best place to work in America right now, according to Fortune Magazine, is the Hilton Hotel chain. The second best place to work in America right now is Salesforce. Now, look, we're talking hospitality. We're talking literal hotel rooms versus San Francisco tech company. And what I want to suggest is that the people that are working at Hilton probably don't want to work at Salesforce. And the people at Salesforce probably don't want to work at Hilton. So this idea of a best culture or a best office or a best anything doesn't really work. And so what I would suggest you to do, or anyone who's listening today, is do what I call is really plant your flag is to understand what is that experience that works best for our people? What is it that allows them to feel that they matter, that they're making impact? Maybe it's a cubicle. Maybe it's a nine to five environment. Maybe it's remote and flex in the work environment that's absolutely unique to whatever our employee is. But I know companies that are 100% remote that do a phenomenal job. I know companies that are 100% nine to five in, in cubicles that do a great job too. 
The problem with companies like either of these is that when they sell something they're not, and somebody comes into the company without understanding what that experience is going to be, then you set these wild expectations and realize that when the people get there, they are not where they ever even thought they were going to be. A few months ago, I had a conversation with David Heinemeyer Hansen at Basecamp. And I love the way he and his co-founder, Jason Fried, they talk about their work and their ideal state. They're going to attract a certain type of person that you know wants to work 35 hours a week, wants to work remote and do good in the community and all this stuff. And I think you know, if we look at leaders who are doing a great job of describing what the experience is like, those kind of guys are people we should probably look to for good examples, right? Well, absolutely. And what's going to happen? I often use Zappos as an example. Zappos, online shoe retailer out of Las Vegas. And look, everyone's sick of the story of how great Zappos is. Here's what I need to tell you about Zappos. I can't stand it there. I can't stand the shake weights and the ferns and the dance parties and the antlers that people are wearing (laughs) at work. But here's the thing. What I hate about Zappos and the environment that they've created is also what I respect most about them. Because here's the thing, I'm not going to apply there. But because they've done this work to proactively articulate what that employee experience is going to be, they have a lineup around the block of people that are applying there because that's exactly what they want. And so Zappos is one of my favorite companies because they've done a great job of telling me why I don't want to work there. And I think what you're saying about Basecamp is they've done the same. So what I would do when I'm looking to attract a new candidate is I would give the most articulate description of what the experience is going to be at at work, not just to attract people, but to detract people too. Because we said earlier in the cast that if the average job posting now gets 200 or 250 applications, who's going to spend the time to go through 250 applications? What I would rather, if I was in HR or if I was building my team, I would rather have 15 candidates that tell me exactly why they want to be there because they've watched the videos on my website, because they've met with people on their potential team, and they've told me why they believe it to be a fit. Can you imagine how much easier the job would be? So true. One of the things, so I'm a marketer, and you know, early on in my career, I was reading so much Seth Godin, and I think he's such a brilliant marketing mind. One of the things he says a lot, and he said it in his books, Tribes, is like, you know, we created this, it's not for everybody. Maybe it's not for you. Right, right. You know, I didn't make this for you. And I think we got to think about this as employers as well. HR professionals need to think like marketers nowadays with what you're describing, is we need to clearly state what our experience is going to be like, what our values and beliefs are, so that we can repel everybody that doesn't think the same way we do. Or believe the same thing as we do. Like you just said about Zappos, like you're never going to apply there because they did such a great job describing what their culture is all about and what they believe in. It's not for everybody, right? That's just it. That is just it. And I mean, I totally subscribe to the idea of recruitment thinking like marketing because what recruitment doesn't really realize is that the job posting that they're putting out is an ad for the position that they're trying to fill. And I think more articulate and specific we can make that ad or the job posting, the better candidate will appeal to and the more specific of the market that will understand us. Let's end the conversation with this question. You said in your book that HR professionals jobs are going to be bigger than ever now and in the future. Describe that. Like, Why is that going to be true? What I think to be true is that when we look at equity or brand equity of a company, 
historically, when, you know, let's just take Apple historically, or let's just take any oil and gas company, let's take BP, for example, let's just take a 1995 BP. When we look at BP, it was primarily the product or the service. When we looked at Apple, it was primarily the product or the service that gave a company its brand equity. Let's look at Coca-Cola. It was primarily the product or the service that Coca-Cola gave us that allowed that brand equity to be what it is. But I think what's happening now in this world of transparency, of near infinite information, is that we're shifting where brand equity lives. Not only does it live in the product or the service anymore, but it lives in the employee experience. And I think that we're seeing this in companies like Apple and current BP and current Coca-Cola and current Amazon is that yes, these companies still have great logos, they're multi-billion dollar global Fortune 500s. And that doesn't mean that everyone wants to work there anymore. And so it's HR's imperative then to articulate not just what the product or the service is or what the mission or the goal of the company is, but what that employee's experience is, knowing that the war for talent is greater than it's ever been before. I mean, in the unemployment rate in America right now, or even in Canada, hasn't been this low nationally since World War II. You know, we're looking even in, I'm in British Columbia in Canada, and the unemployment rate's hovering around just over 3%. I mean, we have never seen this before. And the rise of automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, machine learning will actually create a net gain in jobs. And when I look at my home province, British Columbia, we're going to see that of the million jobs created between now and 2027 or 2028, 15% of those jobs will be unfilled. And so I think we're going to see a significant talent shortage continue across North America and only those companies who create a positive employee experience and do a great job telling that story will be the ones that can attract and keep the best talent that's right for them. And so we're going to see this position blow up because it's going to be that differentiation that is going to be so important, that ability to keep strong talent instead of watching it leave 16, 18 months later, that will allow companies not just to keep up, but even to get ahead. I think that's where the real secret lies. Eric, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. One thing I wanted to ask you just personally, your career has really taken off. You're everywhere. You've done TED Talks. You wrote a book. Why did you get into this? I mean, it seems like you're really trying to change the way people are thinking about work. And I'm just curious, like what your values are and like, what is next for you? Sure. Yeah. I got into this because I couldn't get a job. I graduated at a university and I did the same thing that everyone else did. I applied to 70 different jobs. I changed one line in my cover letter. I tweaked the resume 0% and just sort of really hoped that it would work. I applied to what I thought were the best companies to work for in the area. I looked at the best managed companies and I realized that I was applying to companies and to industries that perhaps I had no interest in at all. And then I realized that I have no idea what it is that we're signing up for. And so my co-founder and I at the time created a company that quantified workplace culture because we wanted companies to be able to tell a better story to attract better candidates. So, you know, that went great and ended up writing a book about it. And I've been speaking about this topic ever since. But I just think that when we look at work being a bigger identifier of who we are now than it's ever been before, just by virtue of hours worked and connected to the amount we're connected to work, imagine, you know, the life that we could live if we enjoyed the work that we did. Imagine the service we would be doing to our families and to our friends if we came home at the end of the day with a skip in our step. See, I was looking at too many statistics and saw that not enough people are happy or are engaged at work. Not enough people are fulfilled. Not enough people are in a position that they feel that they can be their best. And I thought, you know, 
why don't we fix that? It's better for everyone when they come home at the end of the day to be able to do something that you enjoy. And this doesn't mean that we're all flexing remote, that we're playing with dogs all day. That doesn't mean any of these things. It means when we can find, in Seth Godin's words, a tribe of people that do things the way we like to do them. And we can tell that story more effectively then we can keep better talent. And it just so happens that these changes aren't big. They're one degree shifts. They're the ability to find and reduce friction over and over and over again. And when you ask me what's next for me, it's just that. It's finding friction as fast as possible and reducing it. I mean, I find that my five-year, my 10-year goal changes every third day because of the doors that pop present themselves <laughs> and the conversations just like you with the what I'm having with you present themselves. And so if I get too fixed in this five-year goal and not able to pivot along the way, not able to reduce friction that pops up or to seize opportunities that presents itself, then you know I'll get to a finish line that I never wanted to cross. And so I think that we can do that with companies too. There are too many variables. There are too many moving parts for us to assume that we know what's going to happen tomorrow. But if we can reduce the friction today, and continue to make the smallest viable changes over and over and over again with at least a North Star or a piece of guidance down the road that will inevitably change, that's when I think we can build the most intentional future and a great place to work along the way. My guest has been Eric Termunde. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me.